In this episode of Investors and Operators, I'm going to talk with Drew Brantley, who's Managing Director at Frisch Capital, which is an advisory firm focused on independent sponsors. Uh, one of our previous clients and current clients has worked with them, so I thought it'd be an interesting episode to dive into all things independent sponsors. So, Drew, great to have you here. And what I, I just want to dive straight into this, and if we could talk about how do you define the different types of independent sponsors? And then let's get into the meat of what a lot of independent sponsors want to know about, which is how much do they get paid? How much do they have to put in? Who gets control? Let's dive deep. Let's do it, man. Well, Jordan, well, Jordan, thanks for having us on today. Uh, excited to be here. So independent sponsors are a spectrum. So we've been working with independent sponsors for 25 years back before the term independent sponsors was even around. So, I mean, back in the 90s, it was just raising capital on a deal by deal basis, you know, bootstrap financing or deal first guys. The model's always been the same, but through the years, it's evolved into then fundless sponsors and now independent sponsors. But so, and as it's become more accepted, I would call it the spectrum of people or the number of quantity of people that are interested in being independent sponsors has grown. So that spectrum of independent sponsors has grown. Um, we, we think about it in a couple ways. Um, you know, first I'll kind of set to the side the search fund model and differentiate that, you know, I, and I'll speak a little bit in stereotypes. I get it. There's always exceptions to the rules, but a lot of times, you know, people that are doing a search fund um, tend to be a little bit younger, maybe coming out of business school. It's kind of the first company they've run and they get a group of investors that have the option to invest in their deals. Uh, and then they kind of fund a search for, you know, one or two years while they find a business. So that's kind of the search fund model model. The independent sponsor model to differentiate from that really is you don't have anybody funding your search. It's self-funded. So, you know, it's very entrepreneurial from that perspective. It takes a lot of moxie to go out there and run at it because it can take, you know, everybody, everybody wants it to get done fast, but it can take a long time. It can take 12, 18, 24 months before you get a deal done. And so, but in that spectrum of who's in the independent sponsor world, we kind of um, group it into a couple buckets. Um, a lot of our independent sponsors come out of the finance and the M&A world. So some type of professional could be, you know, private equity, family office, investment banking, um, you know, accounting or advisory, somebody that's in the ecosystem of M&A and they get the itch to want to start doing deals and they don't want to raise a fund or they don't quite have the track record to raise a fund. So the independent sponsors are a great way, for, uh, the model's a great way for them to get started. So that's one type. So then there's type one is disgruntled banker slash disgruntled private equity associate <laughs> through principal. He says, yeah. I want to do this on my own. Somebody that looks and goes, holy cow, who's making those kind of economics? Let me go, let me go make some of that. And they want to go take a swing at it. Um, the other, the other side of the spectrum, I'm going to call it is more operator um, background. So somebody that comes out of the operating world, they've either owned or run their own businesses, um, run businesses for somebody else. Um, a lot of times we find these professionals um, are more in kind of the C-level suite um, or running M&A for um, larger businesses and kind of running that M&A division or that acquisition thesis and or focus on organic growth. And they've been able to really see and implement a lot of organic growth. And they've kind of seen what somebody was able to exit for the liquidity event or the results that they got. And they realized that there's this other world of doing deals. And so um, that's kind of another, the other end of the spectrum. Um, so from that bucket a, too is the industry operator. Yeah. Either they maybe ran a, 
they had a PL or made, you know, for like a division or something like that, or they ran corp dev for a billion dollar corporation, something like that. You know, there's kind of the middle spectrum that's a combination of both. A lot of guys have some combination, maybe it's consulting background. So they've gotten their hands dirty in the operations side with businesses, but also some MA experience. And then, so there's some combination, if you look at their resume of both operating and MA or finance, there's a million ways that that can kind of come together. Um, the other thing that I would say is from an age perspective, and I'm going to, I'm going to define age as kind of their, think of your professional journey. So younger in your journey, kind of closer to being out of school versus, you know, near retirement, um, you know, really hits the spectrum. A lot of independent sponsors uh, that we work with, I'm going to call it our, our mid thirties or older, um, kind of mid thirties to, to mid fifties, kind of like, I'm going to call it in the prime of the production years, kind of that 20 year period where they're really, you know, humping it and working hard. Um, we do get a, a spectrum of folks that are independent sponsors that, you know, kind of had a whole career. They retired and retirement didn't suit them, you know, or their their spouses said, hey, you know, you're spending too much time at home all of a sudden, you know, get out and go go make some money again and go keep yourself busy. Um, so we see a lot of people that want to, you know, swing the bat again. And then we get some guys that are and gals that are on the younger side that um, just, you know, have a lot of moxie and have access to opportunities or the willingness to go find opportunities. And, you know, they're in their late 20s. So, I mean, anybody can be an independent sponsor. Um, so, but but that's kind of how we think about categorizing it. Let's dive into kind of the different stages of being an independent sponsor. Once you have started the search, you know, first, you got to start the LLC and then start putting together your marketing materials and then beginning the search. Um, can you kind of break down the different phases of the life cycle of an independent sponsor and um, kind of the, uh, maybe some of the key mistakes that people make during the different phases and things to keep in mind to be successful during each phase? The way I think about it, if I categorize most of the, the new independent sponsors or the people that are doing deals for the first time as an independent sponsor, we see two categories of folks, okay? One category would be the people that have a clear defined thesis. And that thesis could be, you know, industry thesis. It could be an operational thesis, meaning they're looking for companies with a cer certain operational deficiency or, or they're targeting a certain type of company, but they're very clear about either the industry or the type of business that they're going after. So they have that thesis defined. Could be from their background, maybe they're operators or maybe they've done deals in a space, but they know what they want to go chase after. Okay. Then the other people are going to be the more agnostic or the more that they are committed to doing this. So a lot of the people that we talk to, you know, they've kind of crossed the Rubicon, they burnt the boats on the other side. They want to be an independent sponsor, but they take a little bit more of an agnostic approach out of the beginning, or they don't quite know where to plant the flag and and to identify. So a lot of people that we see uh, come into it and they're like, well, I'm just going to start looking for deals and I'm going to find something and then build a thesis around it. And there's plenty of people that do that. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, if I would say one of the things that we encourage our clients to do is put a plant a flag in the ground, develop a thesis. Um, and you can have multiple flags in the ground, you know, three or four theses. That's fine. I mean, if you look at private equity firms or family offices, a lot of them have, you know, investment criteria that's multiple industries. So that's fine. But plant a flag in the ground and get smart on a space, something that can 
lengthen the amount of time that it takes for you to get your first deal done is not having a clearly defined thesis. And so for some people, there's benefit to that because they get to kind of go through the journey of figuring things out and what works, what doesn't. But if you're looking to kind of shortchange and say, look, I want to get a deal done faster versus slower. You know, I don't want to wallow in like trying to figure out which way's up. Plant a flag in the ground, like develop a thesis, get smart on a space and 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 start working towards something. It doesn't mean you can't do other things later, but in our experience, the independent sponsors that really develop a clear thesis, they plant a flag in the ground, maybe they write a white paper, they go to industry conferences, they start talking to people in a space, they really get smart on a space. They can talk to sellers, you know, more than just a high level about their business. They they really understand it deeper than the average investor. Um, those people are the ones that that we find find better deals, find deals faster, and get better deals done. How do you think about developing a thesis? You know, for example, in some of the conversations we have with our independent sponsor clients and other capital providers, it, some of the advice has been like, start with what you know and kind of go in concentric circles, you know, from that. I don't know if I'm using my geometry correctly. Yeah. No, circles. I <laughs> Expanding <laughs> circles. That's absolutely one way to do it. And a lot of people do that. And it's an easy thing to do because typically the background and the resume connect with, you know, that. So maybe you were in healthcare, you did some deals in healthcare. So it's like, hey, I'm going to start with healthcare. Or, you know, I know asset light business services because I did four deals or I'm an operator out of that space. So I'm going to start with what I know. Absolutely. That's a great way to do it. Um, it's not the only way to do it though, because some people come out and they've got more of a agnostic M&A background or, you know, if they got more, maybe they've worked in three or four industries. And so when we think of developing a thesis, you know, it's always great to me when you do have background in a space because it just adds some credibility to maybe your thesis and what you're trying to do. But we've done deals with guys that have never done a deal in an industry or in a vertical, but they've taken the time to get smart on it. They've written a white paper. You know, they've done a ton of research. They've read everything they could. They just start cold calling people to say, hey, you know, I'm thinking about getting into this industry. They literally call sellers, Jordan, out of the blue, cold call them and say, hey, look, I'm thinking about buying a business in this space. You know, it looks like you've got a phenomenal business and and I love what you've done here. You know, I was curious, you know, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you got started or where do you see the industry going? And they they talk to people. They literally just start talking to people. Yep. And it's amazing what people will share with you when you start getting out there. I think a lot of people, a lot of independent sponsors, when they start out, it can be a lonely road because you're doing it by yourself. Maybe you got a partner, but it's one or two people a lot of times. And so they get in their head about, you know, I got to know everything or I've got to be the smart one or I've got to have all the information. And they forget or maybe they don't think about the fact that most of us in life have had people that have helped us on our journey. And one of the great joys of life, in my opinion, at least for me and, and Bob and I talk about this all the time, is being able to help other people out and, you know, share some wisdom. And, and it's always fun. You know, we take in interns here from the University of Georgia and, and it's always fun to bring them in and tell war stories and they ask questions and, you know, say, hey, you know, this is what I wish I knew when I was your age. And, and we find on the business side, people are willing to do the same thing because a lot of sellers, especially older ones, they see the change in guard in their industries or for themselves. And if there's, and a lot of them love their industry. And so if they can help somebody that's trying to get started, that's younger than them, or maybe at a different phase in their journey, um, they're more than happy to impart that knowledge. But you got to be willing to 
take some no's and get hung up on and, you know, do that sort of thing. Again, it's why it takes Moxie to be an independent sponsor. One of the things that's just making me think about is the importance of density of network. So if you commit in to a thesis and plant your flag, as you said, then you know who all the bankers are. You know who all the lenders are. You know who the sellers are going to be in a sub-industry. And then you're able to do research more effectively in the adjacent industries. You know the conferences. You know the industry organizations. You know the influencers. And so even if you're, it sounds like if you're starting from a generalist perspective, make like a 75% decision on a thesis and then just stick with it. Yeah. And so, yes, yes. And if you think about your firm or what you want to do, okay, I'm going to call it two levels of your, of of a thesis. There's maybe a firm level thesis that says like, regardless of industry, here's what we're looking for. You know, and I wish I could say that most of it is, is unique, but I'm just going to throw everybody under the bus. It's a lot of the same stuff. We want to buy founder-owned businesses, first institutional capital in. We want to start between two and 10 of EBITDA. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, that's all good. But then also kind of what, what is it that's going to differentiate you? And so I'm, I'm, I'm really saying that to challenge people to say, if you go look at 30 private equity groups or family offices or other independent sponsors, if your website and your investment criteria is going to look exactly like theirs, what you're saying is unique is not unique. Okay. So how can you differentiate yourself? So for example, we were working with these guys that um, they developed kind of a firm, firm level thesis, which we thought was really nice because they said, look, we want to work at the intersection of multi-unit and health and wellness. Okay. And that was kind of their thesis. So they said, yes, we want all that founder owned, all that jazz, but then here's kind of how we want to think about it. And then within that, they developed multiple industry theses. So that could be anything from, you know, gyms to, um, you know, healthcare to whatever, but that's the intersection of what, where they were wanting to plant a flag. Does that make sense? Yep. Yep. And, and to um, me, that's super unique. Not, not a lot of people take the time to really go that far down. They're like, oh, well, I'm just going to do asset like business services or I want to do founder owned businesses. And I mean, most independent sponsors, again, I'm not knocking it. You know, it's you got to start somewhere. But I do want to challenge you to say, look, if you're calling me or Bob or Jordan or somebody and you're saying, look, we, we worked for this kind of folks. We were going up market. We wanted to do something that's super entrepreneurial. We want to do things in the two to 10 of EBITDA range, found our own businesses. Like it's the same story, which is good. It's a good starting point, but I want to challenge you. What, what's the next level deep? How can you differentiate beyond yep. that? So let's get into more of the, the, the deal phase. And when independent sponsors, when I found a deal, and now that you find the capital for that, and this is, you know, really thinking about a first, a first deal for an independent sponsor. Um, you know, first, how much on a typical deal size, we'll just call it two of EBITDA and I don't know what, $10 million, no, no, call it a, we'll, we'll keep super easy math, $10 million purchase price. Okay. <laughs> um, how much, how much are they putting into a deal and how should they start thinking about the economics in a deal? All right. Great question. So I'm going to talk about this in two ways. First is runway. As an independent sponsor, as I said, you're funding your own search. So unless you got you know a high net worth individual or you come from a, a wealthy family that's going to help fund it, 
you know, most independent sponsors, you know, scrap and save and they're eating rice and beans or they've saved up, you know, from whatever job they had and they're making this journey. So you got to have some runway. I like to tell people, look, you need to have enough runway ideally for 18 months. If you're starting out and, you know, you don't already have a company and you're trying to figure this thing out, give yourself 18 months worth of runway uh, for you, your family, you know, to fund yourself. Okay. So that's self-funding. The second thing though, is around the deal itself. You're oftentimes you're going to need some amount of care. Let's rewind just a little bit to that search phase for 18 months of runway, excluding family expenses about how much monthly or quarterly or total expenses are you thinking about between flights, hotels, food, potential advisor fees, you know, et cetera? So that's a good question. It's going to depend on the independent sponsor, obviously. I know that's the, the, the easy answer, but, you know, take into consideration, you just named a lot of the stuff. If you're going out to meet with um, businesses, you're going to have to pay for flights. You're going to have to pay for hotels. Um, you know, I would, if, if I'm sitting in your shoes, I would think about, okay, if I'm going to have to invest some time and energy just in talking to sellers, just on that front and traveling to businesses, you know, you can, you can be pretty efficient over Zoom and phone, but at some point you're going to want to get in front of people. Or you're going to want to go to some industry conferences. So at minimum, I would say, to like fund that part of the world, you know, I would say ha- give yourself at least 20 grand or more to be able to fund some travel, go to some conferences to do some stuff around that. If you want to hire people like on the buy side, for example, like some independent sponsors hire, hire buy side brokers. Well, they might charge like a retainer of, you know, two grand to 10 grand, depending on who they are and how good they are, you know, per month or whatever they're charging. So that's kind of a different category. Then there's a, a category of, of other people like um, accountants, attorneys, um, other third party third party folks that might do industry research um, or advisors like investment bankers or people like you or us that maybe you know help with infrastructure, or give access to certain things, or help with due diligence. Um, you know that could easily be another fifty grand on top of that, or you know up to a hundred depending on how much you want to spend. Now, I don't want to scare people by saying you got to have 125 grand to be able to fund yourself as an independent sponsor. That's not true. You can do it on the cheap. And it really just depends on, you know, how thrifty you want to be, um, you know, how many rice and beans you want to eat, you know, kind of if you're willing to fly, you know, JetBlue versus, you know, Delta first class. And I mean, there's there's yeah. cheap and efficient ways to do it. But the whole, the whole point is that I want to make is you've got to give yourself some runway to fund this, to get a deal done. And I think yeah. I think some independent sponsors come into it and they have this mentality of, well, I'm an independent sponsor, everybody else should pay for me or I'm taking this risk, therefore everybody else should take risk with me and then I'll reward them on the back end. Now, some yeah. people are willing to do that with you, but not everybody's willing to do that. I, I think another kind of a good data point is what in the search fund community where like the average, it takes 19 months to find and acquire a company and what around $426,000 between salary and expenses. Um, That's like the average search fund. And that's a pretty liquid community. There's tons of searchers. So I think that's a good data point and it's probably ballpark 
um, what it takes between salary. And I think one of the takeaways I had from our first business that we started is you're an entrepreneur and your spouse is be riding in the backseat and they don't know where the heck this is going, where the destination is, when it ends, when you're refueling for gas. And so one of the mistakes I, I made in the first business was there was never a line in the sand. And so my wife said there were two times she put her foot down in that experience. One, she's like, you have 100 days to get funded or this business stops. And then the next one was you have 100 days to get revenue or this business stops. And I think that was really interesting because the the lesson there was I I should have over communicated with my spouse because let's say that this new independent sponsor was making 250 to 500 at the previous job. And we're doing a very, very different lifestyle going forward. Yeah. And you need to set up quarterly meetings with your spouse or monthly to say, hey, here's where I'm at in my journey. And they probably not knowing creates more stress than knowing and being in a bad situation. Because at least I know we're going through it together. Or maybe that's just our journey. Well, no, but I can totally empathize. So I've started multiple companies prior to doing what I'm doing now, sold a few, still own a few today. But one, the, one of the first ones that we really, I guess it's probably the third company that I started. There was a point where I was draining our retirement accounts to make payroll for people. And I had this like, oh shit moment of like looking at my wife and being like, she was like, well, what what are we doing? And I was like, I, I don't know, but I just know I have to make payroll this week. So this is what I'm having to do today. And, and, and I think what my experience and your experience both speak to, and this, if I tie it back to the independent sponsor and going back to the thesis comment, is what is your plan? What is the business plan? What's the trajectory? And I do think it's smart for people to think about, you know, let's take the search fund model. I said 18 months, you said 19 months. We're within 30 days of each other, you know, of, of what we tell people it potentially can take. You know, and I've seen people longer and I've seen people shorter, but I think having um, having a plan and kind of having some things laid out so that you can have touch points along the way and or goals along the way, make that journey a lot easier to shoot after. That's one of the things I never did early on starting mm. businesses, you know, and just again, to your point, it it's it's got to be flexible. I would not say it could be flexible. It has got to be flexible Love because- it. I will tell you if there's one thing that I've learned is that whether it's starting my own businesses or watching independent sponsors do deals, it never plays out exactly the way you want it to. Okay. It doesn't mean that it's not successful, but just realize that there's going to be some bumps along the way, or there's going to be some twists and turns that you don't anticipate. Yep. Love it. So let's talk about economics on a deal. Um, Can you give me a typical deal size for a first-time independent sponsor and how that cap structure might generally break down and how much money for my piggy bank do I need to put in? Yep. And how much money do I make throughout the deal? All right. So let's talk about the- There's a lot there. That's a lot. So let's start with how much you have to put in and then we'll move to the, the back end economics. So how much you have to put in? This is a question we get all the time. And so many independent sponsors we talk to, when I ask them the question, you know, how much are you anticipating putting in? I hear the same answer probably three quarters of the time. And it's like, well, you know, we've invested a lot in getting to where we are and we're willing to roll part of our fee. But, you know, we've really, you know, we don't have a ton of liquidity because we're investing a lot into getting this business off the ground and totally respect it. I get it 100%. Um, can you fund a deal or can you get a deal done 
without investing some of your own capital into a deal? Yes. Is it more challenging to do that? Or can it be more challenging? Yes. One of the things that we have seen is that over the past, I'm going to call it five years, five to eight years, as the independent sponsor model has become more popular and more accepted, we are starting to see more and more where capital providers are starting to use an independent sponsor's willingness and ability to bring a check to the table besides rolling part of the, or all of their deal fee into the deal as a criteria for how serious or how professional they are and or can have impact or, or many times will have impact on the economics that you can get on the back end. Okay. And I'll get into that in a second. Now, but what I want to unpack by this, because this, I get independent sponsors that push back on this all the time. A lot of times they're like, well, I don't have any money or, or you know, you don't understand. We put money into this. No, I do understand. Like I've started my own businesses. I've drained bank accounts. I know what it takes to get a business off the ground. From a capital provider's perspective, what they are looking at and your ability or willingness to bring a check to the table, and I'm going to talk about whose money it could be, they look at that as alignment of interest, as skin in the game. And as much as you want them to buy into, look, I've spent 12 months trying to find a deal and I've paid, you know, I'm eating rice and beans, you know, out of my piggy bank. As much as you want them to believe that that's alignment of interest, they like that. That shows moxie. But in their mind, that doesn't show alignment of interest. You've got opportunity costs because you're, you're not taking a salary or something that you could be taking somewhere else. But your skin in the game, they view that as your ability to write a check. Because if this thing goes bottoms up, they, they're asking themselves the question, are we the only people that are losing actual cash in this deal? And you can argue that I'm losing opportunity costs because I could have made XYZ doing something else. While that's true, you didn't write a check into the deal and they view that as different. And so what capital providers like to see is that independent sponsors have the ability to write a meaningful check in the deal for them. Whatever meaningful is, they don't, they don't, not asking for bank accounts. They're not asking for, you know, income statements and saying, you know, how much money liquidity do you have? Now, if you sold a company to Blackstone for 100 million, you know, your, your meaningful is going to be different than somebody that's coming out of industry or been an operator and been saving up for three years to go do that. So, you know, 50 to 100 thousand dollars could be meaningful. Quarter million could be meaningful. For somebody else, 10 million could be meaningful. But it doesn't have to be your money. And this is one of the things I want to get to, Jordan, is that many people think I'm asking the question or capital providers asking the question of how much is Jordan going to put into this? Yeah. It's not always, doesn't have to be coming out of your piggy bank. In fact, friends and family, I mean, think about, you know, who do you know? Former colleagues, a former boss, a former, you know, family office you worked with, or maybe a rich uncle or, or you know, your parents, yeah. whoever. Because these are the people, in some cases, capital providers tell me, we actually love it when that kind of people are backing you because you got to go see them at Thanksgiving. You yeah. got to sit down with them at holidays. Let's say that, you know, I have a deal and we want to put $100,000 from Jordan and company, you yeah. know, Jordan family, family and friends into a deal. Does that go into that particular deal or do you create a separate vehicle that is the investing yeah. into it? Great question. There's different ways to do it. You know, I'm not an attorney, I'm not an accountant. So, you know, I'm not talking about the most tax efficient or legally the best structure to do it. But most people are creating some type of legal entity. Those people that are investing through you or with you, that friend and friends and family round, 
They're passively investing. They don't have a seat on the board. They're not going to, you know, if you give them the quarterly board packet or whatever, that's fine, or however you agree to do it. But but they're going to be investing passively through you, through that entity, okay? And you're speaking for them. And that's how most people do it. And in fact, most capital providers don't ask, you know, if, if you say, look, you know, Jordan and Company LLC, uh, you know, we're going to be investing $200,000 into this deal. They're not asking Jordan, how much of that 200000 is coming out of your piggy bank yeah. versus other people? They don't care. They just want to see 51 friends LLC, which might have 51 friends and family into that LLC. Yeah. And that contributes. And, and I might put in 25000 of that 200000 into that 51 friends LLC. And that $200,000 is our cash contribution to that, you know, of the $5 million equity check, then the capital providers see, okay, cool. Jordan plus whoever is in 51 friends in LLC, they're contributing 200,000. Yeah. So exactly. Yeah. Got it. Um, now, okay, let me, let me jump in. Cause I think there's another point to make here. Can you get away from doing that? Like, do you have to do that? The answer is no. I mean, if you get the right deal, the right opportunity, and you're bringing the right value add where people go, wow, this is something I really want to do. People will pay up for a deal. Now, pay up can mean the back end economics, but it can also be foregoing the requirement to do these things. So, again, I'm just talking about if you want to give yourself the greatest chance of success, you know, being able to say out of the gate that you're willing to bring a check to the table um, is going to get capital providers excited or pass that initial hurdle. It's not about the dollar amount, it's about the willingness to do that. So again, that's the distinction I want to make there. Um, you know, but we we again we have done deals where capital providers don't require it. But again, we're just starting to see that as kind of more of a hurdle where more and more people are asking it. Yeah. So I think is it accurate to say the rule of thumb is on how much money is probably going to come out of your personal piggy bank is think about a down payment on a house. That's maybe personal, and then the rest of it, you know, try to get friends and family money to raise, yeah. you know. Hundred or two hundred thousand dollars of yeah, total capital. And look, and look, we've done deals where the independent sponsor put in zero. They had yeah. zero to put in, but again, they got friends and family. We had a deal a couple of years ago that um, the independent sponsor called up uh, like two former colleagues. They each threw a quarter million in. Now, not everybody has those type of people in their rolodex. I get it. Yeah. But the point being, he wrote a his team wrote a, or his company wrote a half million dollar check into the deal, but not a dime of it was his. So. And, I, I want to mention yeah. one other thing on this because I was speaking on a panel at a conference recently and there was, I was the only non-independent sponsor, I think on that panel or maybe one capital provider, but there were these two other independent sponsors on there and this topic came up and the question was really around like, do we have to, or should we, or, and all this. And, and this independent sponsor has, has been around for a while. They've done some deals. They've had some, some exits at this point, you know, so they've been doing deals for a while. And, and he said, you know, early on, we were we were super excited when our first deal, you know, the capital provider said we didn't have to write a check into the deal and they were going to write us a check. They were going to pay us to do the deal. And so he said, you know, we were like, holy cow, we're getting paid to do this and we don't have to write a check into it. This is the greatest business model ever. Like, oh, my gosh, this is incredible. And he goes, so then the next deal we were doing, we had that mentality of like, you should pay us because that's what we did on the first one. You know, and he said, one, we learned that every deal is different. Just because that's what we got from one group didn't mean that that's what we were going to get from every group. 
He said, but when, when it really hit home, the decisions that we were making was when we started to have some exits on those first couple deals. And he said, that first deal that we did, they just exited it recently. And I think they made, I think it was the number was 20. The, if you made an equity, for every dollar you invested on the equity in that deal, they made 25 times their money. 25 times their money. And he said, that was the most expensive money we have ever made in our life. Because he said they gave us the option to roll some of that that fee into the deal in equity, and we chose not to, and we chose just to get the carry on the back end because we decided we wanted that cash. He said, so we chose to do that. We thought it was great they were paying us. We saw the short-term gain on that of getting that cash fee. But really, for every dollar we took out, that cost us 25 times that seven years later on that exit. And he said, now, look, I get it. Like, if you need that money, that's one thing. Like, sometimes we have to make those tough choices. But he said, in reality, when we looked back, he said, we could have rolled a portion of that easily or all of that in and and then now gotten 25 times our money. So he said, you know, now we think very differently about the question when people say, are you, are you going to be investing or rolling, you know, part of your fee or your fee into this deal? We feel very differently about it. So, you know, that's not for me. That comes from an independent sponsor who's been doing yep. this for 10 years. So let's talk about the economics in a deal. Um, typical deal size, let's say, the, let's say that the independent sponsor, friends and family contribute, you know, $250,000 of combined money. Um, how much equity are they getting in the business? Who controls the board? How do they take money out of the business throughout the life of it typically? Yep. And on the back end, how do they make the money? All right. Equity coming in, equity dollars that you're investing and or, um, you know, rolled uh, fee or things like that that you put in that's going in the form of equity, that's going in typically parapassu with your capital provider. The majority of the time, that's what we see. There are some exceptions to that. Some capital providers really look to have a preferred structure um, or they're, you know, whoever they are, that's how they invest their money or put their money to work. And, and they say, look, our money has to be a preferred, but then we're going to put you in the common and they have some type of pref on it. So some people are that way. But a lot of times if you've got a good deal um, and you push on it, most people will give on that um, if you see that in a proposal out of the gate. So don't take that personally. Can you break that down for people? Let's say like an sure. industry operator who wasn't in corp dev and doesn't know what you're talking about. Sure. You know, can we speak high school English? Yeah, sorry about that. Thank you. I'm glad you I'm glad you asked me to do that. I've been accused of that more than once. So, all right. So if you put money into a deal, parapassu, that term means like on the same basis as the other investors. And so if you think about in the capital stack, you've got, you know, debt on the top and all the forms of debt, and then you've got equity in the bottom. The capital stack really refers to, you know, at liquidity, you know, you start at the top of the stack, those people get paid first or paid off first, and then it goes down the stack with the common being at the bottom, okay? And so a lot of times, most independent sponsors, you know, if you think about it like new money coming in and, and equity being rolled or old equity by the sellers, um, Typically, when when independent sponsors are investing in a deal and they're buying equity in the form of cash being paid in, meaning I'm writing a check into the deal, or they're getting equity by rolling part of a deal fee in and getting you know equity in exchange for that rolled fee dollars instead of taking it out in cash, typically that's going in on the same basis 
with the capital partner. And so if that capital partner is investing in the common uh, and they say, look, all of our, our money's going in in the common and we're all going to be together down in the common, then yours is going to be kind of on the same basis. And then some people, though, say, look, we, we come in in a preferred structure because we're that new money that's coming in. And so that new money is going to come in maybe above the old money that's taken, you know, they're making a lot of money off this, but they're going to roll some equity back into the deal. That that might be defined as old money. Um, some people say, look, that old money is going to come in below us because they just made $30 million. And, you know, we're, we're now taking a lot of risk. The point I'm trying to make here is your money typically as an independent sponsor is going to come in on the same basis with that capital partner, whether they come in on the preferred or in the common most of the time. And does that mean on payday, you are paid equally from that pool that's going to you, the capital provider, you, the independent sponsor? Is that That's one point. And then the other one, I guess in terms of control, that's a different topic around boards. Yeah. Okay. That's to, yeah, control is a totally different topic. So if we get in though to the question about, you know, that money, yes, when you get paid, you know, your ownership and how you get paid is really just a math problem of, you know, these total amount of equity, new equity dollars came in or total equity dollars are in the business and yep. or this is how the equity gets bought. This is what your dollars are buying. So whatever amount you put in buys you that amount of equity. Okay. So let's do a simple math math equation here or some simple numbers on yeah. a sample deal on what you come in at, it grows well and five years later you sell it and how that money is, All right, what that looks like. So I'm going to be really bad at this math. So somebody's going to write you a comment, I'm sure, and go, his math is off. He doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. But here's, <laughs> let's directionally, we'll talk hey, about that's it. Why I don't do public math. That's why I'm asking you. <laughs> I, I like to say I'm better with colors. So, you know, but we'll talk numbers here. I'm sure that's bad for me as an investment banker. But um, but let, so if we think about it, let's say the, the equity in the deal is $2 million total. Okay. And let's say half a million of that 2 million is gonna be rolled equity from the seller. And let's just say that everybody's going into the common and we're all on the same basis, meaning we're all in it together equally, okay? So the seller is, if they put in 500,000, they're gonna own 25% of the common equity of this business out of that $2 million equity pool, okay? And is that the, if when you bought the business, the total proceeds that they're just reducing by 500,000 and they're saying, Hey, that's my equity contribution to the next one, next deal. Correct. Yes. If they're rolling equity, yes, they're taking that half a million out of their proceeds, you know, how they do it, whether they literally roll it or they have to actually write a check into it. You know, I that's a different question, but yes, they're, they're, they're rolling part of their sell proceeds back in and buying equity. Now, one of the distinctions to make here, not to get too far off topic here, but the, if they're when you talk to sellers about buying a portion of equity, be careful that if you tell them they're going to get a certain amount of equity, um, you know, you can either tell them, "Look, we want you to roll equity, and you're going to buy 25% of the new co equity, and depending on the amount of debt that you put in." that's going to impact the amount of dollars that they have to buy that 25 million. So if it's a if the the deal is 20 million that has to be done and the new co-equity is, you know, 2 million, you know, there it's going to take less dollars for that equity for them to buy 25%. If that common if that equity pool 
is 10 million, it's going to take more dollars out of those proceeds. So sometimes people get this confused and they say, look, you have to you have to roll 25% of the enterprise value of your deal into the, the deal. And that's going to get you 25% of the equity. This is going to get really complicated here. So like, I don't want to get too far into it. But like, unless your dollars are rolling on a different basis, meaning my dollar's worth more than your dollar rolling in, which you can do, that's one complicated way. But most people say a dollar's a dollar. And so how are you going to do it? Well, the new co is going to typically have some amount of leverage on it unless you do the deal all equity. And so that leverage, that debt on top of it is going to reduce the amount of the, that equity pool. So that equity pool, whatever that is, that's what you're buying into. So if you're talking to a seller and saying, look, we want you to have 25% of the new co-equity, well, depending on your capital structure and the at the end of the day, that typically can move around. You know, So be careful telling them exactly what it's going to be. And I've got a tip that I can tell you about that in a second, but like, be careful about what you tell them. And you know, if you tell them, I'm going to roll 5 million and that 5 million is going to get me 25%, you might not know that that's actually going to get them 25%, that 5 million might get them 30% or it might get them 18% depending on your capital structure. If we go back to our $2 million example. So let's say they put in half a million dollars, that's going to buy them 25%, okay? Then let's say you as an independent sponsor, let's say Jordan's going to put in $100,000, whether it's your money or not, doesn't matter, but Jordan Capital LLC or 51 Capital LLC is going to put in $100,000. Well, that $100,000, if my math is right, is going to buy you about 5% of that business, okay? Then let's say that the remaining 1.4, I think my math is right, 1.4 that's needed, so half a million from the seller, 100,000 from you, and then 1.4 from a new equity investor, they're going to basically buy 70% of the business or own 70% at close, they're getting one for that 1.4, okay? That's just the math of the equity of the business, okay? And so people at, people sometimes get lumped in of like, well, why am I not getting more of that equity and all this? Well, that's just what you're buying. That's not your, that that's kind of, and that's not fully diluted, okay? And what do I mean by that? You know, that's what you buy at close. A lot of times, that common pool, so that 25% rollover equity from the seller, that 5% that you're going to buy for 100000 and then that 1.4 that gets the new equity, you know, 70%, there's going to be another layer of dilution. And that dilution could come in a lot of forms, but the most common way that most businesses have is a, is a management incentive pool. You're going to give some equity to the management of the business. And so typically that's 10%. And so you might give that all, all that 10% away. You might not over the life of the, that investment. But a lot of times people want to allocate the ability for the board to decide to give away up to 10%. Independent sponsor, uh, uh, Jordan & Co. comes in with how much into this? Call it $100,000 in that Okay, And that's going to buy you 5%. Cool. So 5% before management incentive pool, before everything, Pre-dilution, 5% going in. And yep. this deal was how much of equity in the beginning total? We'll call it 2 million of equity in my example here. And so another, what, 8 million of yeah, for then, enterprise value, 10, 10 million total yeah, purchase if, price? If 10 million, let's say you're putting four turns of leverage on it. So you, that means you're you're putting 8 million of debt. If, if your business is 2 million of EBITDA as an example, and you're putting four turns of leverage, meaning that the EBITDA 
you know, the amount of debt divided by the EBITDA, you know, that gets you the amount of leverage when people say four turns, that's what they mean. You know, so 8 million, you know, divided by 2 million of EBITDA, which is the EBITDA of the business is going to be four turns of leverage, gets you that 10 million of enterprise value. All righty. So now I'm into the business. I bought it. Everyone's happy. We're off to the races. During the life of that five years of growing the business, how do I make money as yeah. an independent sponsor? That, and I'm glad you asked the question that way, because a lot of times people focus on like, how much equity do I have? Well, your compensation doesn't always come in the form of equity. In fact, a lot of it doesn't come in the form of actual equity. Okay. It can, but it doesn't all the time. And so you, you've bought a certain amount of equity and that's, that's yours. You own it. It is what it is, that 5%, you know, not diluted. Then there's three typical levers of how independent sponsors get compensated in the life of a deal. The first one is a closing fee. The second one's a management fee. And the third one is a carry or a promote, okay? Or an equity incentive. All of those terms on that third one mean the same thing and I'll unpack that in a second. But let's go back to the first one. So a closing fee or a transaction fee, you might hear either term, they mean the same thing. This is typically a percentage of the enterprise value of the transaction that you're gonna get at close, okay? And I'm going to call it 2% of the enterprise value of the deal is an industry average for a closing or transaction fee that goes to an independent sponsor. Same thing okay. as an investment banker is paid on a deal. Effectively. Exactly. A lot of times, yeah, investment bankers might get paid in that ballpark. And so it tends to be, you know, around the same thing. Now, you, you might have heard, you know, Jordan and I talking about maybe rolling some of that in in fee. What they mean by that is a lot of times you will have the option or the ability that's typically in the form of a cash fee, which means it is taxable. So that's a different topic, but you can roll that in or a portion of that in and buy equity for it. So I might choose to say, let's say I'm getting a $100,000 fee at closing, you know, for the deal. Maybe that's not the 2% math, but just for simple numbers, let's say I'm getting a $100,000 fee on the deal. I can choose to roll that in in equity. So maybe it closed in our example of 2 million, maybe I'm putting in 100,000, so that's going to buy 5%. And then I'm going to roll, let's say I just roll a $100,000 fee for simple math in, that's going to buy me another 5%. So right there, I've now owned 10% of the business out of the gate between what I've bought and then what I've rolled in and bought with that rolled fee. So that's another, that's one way that you can get compensated. And I think it's important to note like why the closing fee exists, because you have put in the time to go find that business. You have spent that two hundred fifty dollars to $500,000 to find that business over 18 months to buy it and everything that goes into that. So you are being compensated because you are finding a deal for that capital provider that now owns 50 to 75% of the equity. So you're effectively being paid. It's like a a, a business development person. Yeah, <laughs> or, it's almost or like a, a buy side broker fee, like yeah, or, a buy side broker fee, fee. You know, totally. Yeah, and and that's exactly. It's the compensation for saying, "Hey, look, you had the moxie to go out there and do this," and and so you're being compensated for this. Now, keep in mind your expenses around your business or that deal can get most of the time can get reimbursed at close. That's happening the majority of the time on our deals. Now, your personal expenses and all that. You know, maybe not. And if you, you know, flew around the country first class to look at 30 different businesses, maybe not all of that, but the stuff that's tied to that. I'm in, I'm in the cargo spirit, airways, like <laughs> yeah, cargo exactly. hold. 
Exactly. You know? <laughs> why get why buy that ticket? Independent sponsor. <laughs> yep. <laughs> exactly. So management fee is the next one. All right. Um, management fee is typically that's so if you're there's two ways you can get compensated during the deal itself. So this is where you actually are getting paid money over the life of the investment, annually, quarterly, monthly, however it's done. Those two ways. First one is salary and bonus. If you step into the C-suite and you're going to run this thing for the day-to-day, um, whether you want to or maybe you have to step in because maybe something happens. We had that happen with an independent sponsor. We did a deal with them two years ago. Um, they kind of hit this bump in the road. He said, hey, I'm going to step in and run this thing. So he he went from taking a management fee to a salary. Salary and bonus is the most common Management fee, though, is if you're going to be operating from the board level, most independent sponsors, if you're not running the day-to-day, you're getting a management fee. That's for your involvement, helping execute on the thesis and working with the day-to-day management kind of along the way, giving them guidance. Maybe you're doing M&A, whatever it is you're doing. The typical compensation for a management fee, kind of the industry middle of the road, is 5% of EBITDA, okay? annually. Now, that might be paid quarterly. It might be paid monthly. It might be paid annually. Um, Again, depending on who you are and the capital provider and the deal. But that 5% of EBITDA is your compensation annually for being involved with the deal and helping you keep the lights on and feed your family. Okay. And what is a, what is the most common board decision between the frequency? Is it 5% 5% of EBITDA paid an, uh, uh, annually, but that is paid monthly? Or is that, the, how much the, yeah. do the capital providers really care? I mean, I know it depends on how's the business doing. Yes, that's an important piece. So by the way, on that note to mention before we get to how it's paid, a salary and a bonus, unless you get fired, they're not going to cut off your salary. A management fee, if you hit bumps in the road and let's say you're breaking covenants, the lenders can and will cut off your management fee, okay? So that can get cut off. So that means you might have to spend time where you're not technically getting compensated. Now, usually if it gets shut off for a period of time, it can accrue until things get turned back around. So I do want to mention that. So so in this example of 2 million of EBITDA, that's $100,000 for the year, that is $25,000 that you are paid per quarter as a management fee. Correct. And that and is a board member management fee, basically. Yeah, that's one way to think about it. Um, yes, but it's typically, most of the time we see it paid quarterly. Um, occasionally people hold to annually, but a lot of times if an independent sponsor asks and says, hey, can I have this monthly? I really needed to keep the lights on. Most people understand that. And if you ask, a lot of times people can be amenable to that. Um, it really so, just depends on everybody's situation. And salary and bonus depends on the type of business the industry, the growth, and- Whatever the market up. comp is for that kind of industry or that business. Okay. Um, well, okay, let's let's do a super generalization. Two, Two million EBITDA business, yeah. call it 10 million of revenue. Hey, Jordan has to step in as interim CEO. Hey, board, here is my proposal to you. What is, I think is a ballpark range. I mean, it, to your point, it does depend on the industry, but call it quarter million okay. plus, you know, maybe some bonus. kind of bonus structure. Yeah. All right. So now, so we talked about closing fee. So you are getting paid approximately 2% of the enterprise value as a closing fee. You can put that in your own piggy bank, or you can roll that into the deal and get yep. more equity. Your family decision, how much money is left in the bank after doing your 18 months of search. 
Number two, when operating the business, you have two ways to get paid. Management fee, which is 5% of EBITDA annually, typically paid quarterly, can be monthly, or salary and bonus if you have to step in on an interim basis to run the business in some capacity. One more thing on the management fee, depending on who your capital partner is, sometimes a capital partner might need or want part of a management fee as well, depending on who they are and kind of how actively they want to be involved. So there can be some sharing in a management fee. Mm. So as an example, maybe let's say they, they need some management fee and you need some, maybe you bump it up to 6% of EBITDA and you know you take four and they take two. I'm giving that as an example, yeah. or maybe you split it 50-50. It but does that matter of like an institutional capital provider that has, let's say there's a flexible capital provider out there that does you know debt, the debt and equity providers. Yeah. Um, do they actually care that? Like if I'm an independent sponsor, I'm like, yo, you're on fund X, and you have how many billions and you want an extra $10,000 out of this? Like seriously? So, well, and that's a good point. And that's, I think the point I'm trying to make is it all depends on who the capital partner is. Yeah, true. Because some, some are smaller, some might be a family office, you know, mm. and they literally keep the lights on or some like, you know, maybe it's a smaller committed fund and, you know, they're not sitting on, you know, 2 billion of AUM where they're pulling a ton of fees to your point where it matters. So I, I do think, you know, if you really push come to shove, a lot of capital providers understand that an independent sponsor needs to keep the lights on. So the point of like, can you and will you be compensated for your time and energy? Yes. The point that I'm simply trying to make is that depending on the capital partner and how active they need to be involved or who they are or their their business model or how they like to put money to work or need or want to be compensated, just don't be surprised if you encounter people that say, hey, look, I need or want part of a management fee as well. Um, and don't take it personal. You know, if somebody's bringing the majority of the capital to the deal, part of my mindset sometimes is like, look, if they need a fee, you know, okay, and you need a fee, everybody gets a fee. Like that's kind of how the world goes around as long as the business can handle it and it's within reason. But it sounds like that's a negotiating point on also what you're contributing. 100%. And if if this is a super active capital provider that's adding a lot of operational value versus like, guys, listen, for the past 20 years, I've been an industry executive. Like I'm the active board member here. You're the money. Well, and and I will say this, all of this is a hundred percent negotiable. And that's what I mean with our clients. That's one of the things we say is like, look, our goal is to negotiate on your behalf, you know, around the economics and the capital and the terms of the capital structure, you know, based off what we're seeing. And so all of this is negotiable. And so you'll get people sometimes that are right now trying to say like this is this is what economics are. Yeah. There are not set economics like two and twenty for a committed fund like you'll hear about a, a fund getting. You know, independent sponsor economics can be all over the play the place depending on a lot of, of variables. So, but we're we're kind of giving you directional yep. guardrails of how to think about it is probably the best way to think about it. But yes, it's all negotiable. Third, third and final bucket. Yeah of fees, which is carry fee, promote, slash equity incentive unit, different yep. ways to say it. All right. Typically, a promoter or carry is a gain on the equity that's invested. And so to, I'll try to make this simple. Let's say somebody puts in, you know, $10 million of equity into a deal. Okay. And let's say at 1x, 
Um, typically, when talk people talk about like an X of return of their capital, they're talking about a cash on cash return or MOIC, money on invested capital. And so if they put in 10 million, a 1X return means they're getting that 10 million back first, okay? So they're gonna get that first 1X is their principal back. They're not making money, they're just getting their principal investment back, okay? Then in my simple math example here, let's say 2X in my example means that now the next 1X after that first 1X, so you got 1X plus 1X equals two, some one plus one equals two, that second X, okay, is gonna be 10 million of profits that they're making off that principal investment of 10 million, okay? So when we talk about it, that's what we mean. That's kind of how that math works. So a lot of times, what we are seeing is what we call a tiered or hurdle-based uh, carry structure that an independent sponsor can get for their money. Um, now, there's different ways to do it, but this is the most common of what we see. Most, most of the time, capital providers like this because it allows them to have a little bit of what we call downside protection early on in the investment. If they don't make as much money, they're not going to give away as much money. Independent sponsors, however, tend to be very optimistic about the potential returns. And so they like the fact that if you hit higher returns for your money or higher cash on cash or IRR returns on your money, then you can hit higher amounts of a carry. Okay. And so let me unpack this. So a lot of times on the higher end of the spectrum, I would say a promote or carry structure, we typically expect to see up to a 20% promote. That's what we expect. That means on the gains of the equity, however those hurdles are put together, you're going to earn at least 20% or up to a 20% promote on the gains of the equity that were invested when there's a big liquidity event or you're making distributions over time. Okay. Now, what we're seeing on a lot of our deals, again, because we're negotiating, we like to see closer to 25 to 30 or 35% on that outer, outer tier. So you can get higher than that. It just depends. And this is, you know, one of the things we're trying to work for and, you know, nothing's guaranteed in this world, but, you know, that's, we like to see those higher amounts on those higher, higher hurdles. Okay. Can we give an example of breaking that down? Exactly. And this can get complicated. So I'm going to try to make it simple. Let's say one X and nobody yell at me for these hurdles. Cause I'm sure there's examples of other things, but let's say one X is return of your 10 million. Okay. 2x of the gonna, equity yeah so let's say simple math let's say we sell a business for a hundred million dollars okay and let's say exclude uh rollover equity from a seller let's exclude equity that you put in let's just say there was no other money in the equity just the 10 million that the equity provider put in okay so i'm just trying to show a simple math example of a waterfall for the promote. So five years ago, my I put in 10 million. The equity pool was $10 million five years ago. We sold That's, the business enterprise value of $100 million five years later. Exactly. So we sell that business. Let's say there's no debt, cash-free, debt-free. Let's say you sell it for 100 million. Let's say you're getting out 100 million. Okay. And you didn't put any money. Let's say Jordan's the independent sponsor. I put in the 10 million as the capital provider, but I'm gonna give you a promote that in my example is gonna be up to a 20% promote. Well, here's how that's practically gonna work in my, in my fictional example. The first 10 million, so the first one X return, so we make that 100 million, the first 10 million that gets paid out, 
I'm going to get back and that's the return of my principal. Okay. So that's the first one X. Okay. Then let's say the way we've structured it is after two X, you're going to get 10% as the independent sponsor. So that means that the next, so after that first 10,000, there's 90,000 that's left over. Okay. So the next 10 or 90 million, excuse me, that's left over. So the next 10 million that gets paid out until I hit the 2X mark is going to go to me as the capital partner. Okay. So that's going to be my first profit. So I'm going to get some profit or a preferred return. Sometimes people talk about it in that way before I'm going to give you the independent sponsor something because I put up all the money at risk to do the deal. That's the mindset. So I need to be paid after the first 10 million is paid, boom, yep. returning the principal. The next 10 million, me, the capital provider who put up all that money and you only put up a little bit, I'm going to get paid first. Correct. So let's go back to our example. 1X, my first 10 million. 2X, my, I'm going to make an actual 10 million of profit. And then at that point forward, there's 80 million that's left. So from that point going forward, until I hit in my example now 3X, for every dollar that gets paid out, you're going to get 10 cents on that dollar. I'm going to get 90 cents. So I'm going to say, look, I'm going to give you 10 cents or 10% going forward on this next 10 million. Okay. So until, so we're going to play that out. So until I hit 10 million, you're getting 10 cents. I'm getting 90 cents on every dollar. So practically speaking, rough numbers, that means the next 11 million, 10 million of that's going to go to you. And 1 million of that is going to go to me. I know that's not the exact math, but I'm just using round numbers here. 10 okay? million to the capital provider, yes. 1 million to you, the independent sponsor. Because if I'm saying I've got to hit a 3X hurdle before I'm now going to give you 20%, okay, let's say I've got to hit that 3X hurdle for you to get 20%, I've got to hit that 10 million of profits to me again. So that's where I'm kind of getting my round numbers, 11 million, okay? I know that's not the math. Don't rake me over the coals, okay? Um, so then once we hit three times our invested capital, so now I've, and as the investor, have made, call it 20 million of profits, plus I've gotten my principal back, so we've paid out a total of 70 or 30 million that's come back to me as the investor. And now you, as the independent sponsor, you've made a million dollars, okay? And you haven't put in a dime into this fictional deal, but you made a million dollars, okay? Now, let's say above 3X, we're going to split that 80-20, okay? So that means for every dollar paid out, you're going to get 20 cents and I'm going to get 80 cents, Okay. Now, at this point, we've got $69 million that are left. So at 20% of that, you're going to make north of $13, $14 million, whatever that math is. Somebody else can do it in their head real quick. And I'm going to make you know, the balance of that. But so as an independent sponsor, this is where it gets really attractive. And this is where people go, holy shit, I can make a lot of money at this. When you hit a home run, meaning a home run, meaning you're making four or five or more times or 10 times your money on a deal at exit when there's a liquidity event, or if you're doing liquidity along the life of the, the investment, if you're making 10 times your money as an independent sponsor, you can make a lot of money off this promote. Now, keep in mind, you're making that money, Jordan, as the independent sponsor, but you haven't actually put in a dollar of that. I put in all of that $10 million, but I'm giving you 
a percentage of that. It's the same way that a private equity firm works when they take LP money, limited partner money, and people invest in their firm, they get a percentage of the gains of the equity. It's the same thing. It might be structured differently, but it's the same thing, okay? And so that's where this can be very lucrative because on this deal, yes, I might've made round numbers here. Let's say I made in total 85 million, but you made 15 million over, call it a five-year investment of this without having to put in any money. And that's where it's really attractive. And, that, and I think people, this is the, the economic metric where people think about being an independent sponsor that gets them really excited where they want to go do it. How many years have you been doing this? As a firm, we've been doing this for 25 years. I've been doing this okay. about six, seven so, years at this point. So what percentage of the independent sponsors over the past 10 plus years as a firm, do you think understand the waterfall of the economics? It's a really good question. I think most people think they understand it, but I think until they actually see it, they don't really understand it. And I'll, I'll give you an example of this. One of the things we always ask for is if we get a proposal from somebody and somebody's seriously considering a capital provider, we say, hey, will you give us a waterfall? We ask the capital provider, say, give us a waterfall that illustrates the math of the economics of the carry and the promote structure. And, and we'll oftentimes say, let's just use some simple numbers, depending on the size of the deal in the company. And let's say maybe do, in my example here, let's say maybe let's do, you know, 50, 50 million at exit, 100 million at exit, and 150 million at exit that shows, let's just assume that it's cash-free, debt-free, that illustrates the waterfall of my promote or carry. And the reason you want to do that is people can calculate this differently. It seems like this should be simple math, but sometimes people will net against that, like the, the management fee or, um, you know, they don't count distributions for tax every year against the liquid, you know, the proceeds of the business. There's a lot of different ways that you can calculate this. And so it's important. It's not it's not always as simple as everybody wants it to be. And so it's important to get it in writing so you can actually see the math in Excel and kind of follow the trickle of the money as it goes through a potential liquidity event for you to understand how are they calculating the promote. Um, now, do you have a, do you have as a resource or are there particular capital providers where it's, they have a template structure that at least allows the independent sponsors to start seeing this number, obviously per deal, per capital provider, it's going to vary. Um, but I know yeah. if there's like resources online where it has templates for independent sponsor well, waterfalls. Th there's really not a template for it other than kind of the template of the theoretical math. And the reason I say that is because, I mean, I can help somebody understand, you know, this is how the, the simple math works. But what I mean by this is that every capital partner is different. And so what they include in those hurdles or what they count against the waterfall or don't count against the waterfall, that's going to that's gonna vary from capital provider to capital provider. And, and do not assume that your math is their math and don't assume that they're thinking about it the way that you think about it. So, you know, you might understand, this is where I, where I answered your question a little bit vaguely, but I think most people think they understand the math because they're assuming, but don't assume that your math is their math get it in writing, see it on paper, see how it trickles out. Um, because there's different things that people will include that will impact your economics. So maybe to kind of 
summarize this in terms of the economic part of the discussion, which is on a typical independent sponsor deal yep. over five years, what is a ballpark amount that at the on sale, how much money, if it goes well, you know, not average, not home run, so this went well, everyone's yep. happy. How much does that mean into my pocket in my piggy bank? So I'm going to give the investment banking disclosure here. This is not a guarantee. Everything that, you know, I'm going to say, assume it doesn't happen and assume unanticipated things happen. So do not take this as gospel. This is not a guarantee. I'm simply using an example as math in this. Okay. So I know there's other things I should say too in there, but you hopefully that drives home the point. The point being here, um, let's say you get your closing fee, you know, you're, 5% that you, let's say you rolled that 100,000 in and that buys you 5%, that 5% is going to buy you, in, in our example, whatever 5% of that equity is going to be. And so let's say, you know, you exit at 10 million, let's say there's 10 million that goes to the equity investors. At, let's say there's, yeah, there's 10 million that goes to the equity investors, that 100,000 that you put in, okay, that bought you 5%, you're going to get 5% of that 10 million. Okay. So that math should be about 500,000. So you've made five times your money on that 100,000 that was invested. That's one way that you're going to make money in my example here. If you're making, um, call it uh, a quarter million dollars or a hundred, let's say making a hundred thousand dollars a year in a management fee as like annual compensation. Technically, you're going to be compensated over five years for 100,000 a year. You're going to get half a million dollars over those five years in the form of a management fee. Okay. So that's another half a million dollars. And then the promote, again, these are random numbers that don't have math associated with them, but let's say that it's, you know, it's a good deal and you made five times your money. And let's say, let's say you hit that outer hurdle and, and you were able to earn in some, into some of the higher hurdles. And so maybe you're making on top of that another $2 million in a promote in our simple $2 million equity pool example that, you know, makes 10 million at the end of the day. And so maybe you're making another 2 million off of your promote. So in my example here, maybe you've made 2 million off of promote, you've made half a million off of your equity investment, and you've made half a million off a of management fee over five years. And so if that were the math, then you've technically made 3 million over the life of the investment from all the different forms of your thing. And obviously that's pre-tax, you know, you've still got the tax implications of, you know, whatever you're making along the way. And that decision needs to go into what you and your family think is a reasonable amount. And should you keep your job or not? Yep. I'm not <laughs> an attorney. I, I'm not an accountant. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, and I think that the, one of the really interesting things here, one of, I think it was one of the key takeaways is if you're going into a slower economy, that's a great time to buy fundamentally good businesses when all these baby boomers who are now in their 70 plus need to sell like, hey, baby boomer, do you want to wait for another two to five years and hopefully have an upturn and hopefully you sell then? Like this is a great time to buy and you don't have to have the money in your piggy bank to go off and, and put that in. You can get 51 friends LLC, the friends and family money to put in there to get that. This can be this is not a get quick rich scheme, but it can be very lucrative. 
Okay. It can be a get rich slow scheme over time, but it can be very lucrative if you play the game right and you play it well. Um, nothing's guaranteed though. And so you've got to understand that, I think, out of the gate that you are taking risk. And I think some people, you know, we see this sometimes where people, I think, get sucked into the numbers we're giving and they're like, holy shit, I can make, you know, $40 million off this over the life of it. I'm going to get rich. And I'm, and I try to temper it and be a Debbie Downer to a certain extent to just bring you to reality of like, it takes a lot to get there and you've got to know what you're doing. So, you know, if you want, you know, get quick rich, I've got some ocean for a property in Arizona that I can sell you, you know, but, um, <laughs> but if you're willing to really dig in and you understand that was humor, by the way, for everybody, you know, but if you're really, you know, if you're interested in playing the game and playing it well, and being consistent over time, it can be very lucrative. And a lot of people yeah. make a lot of money and that's what attracts people to this. Yeah. So, well, this is fantastic. Uh, I think this needs to be episode one. <laughs> <laughs> totally. We can make we, this episode one. I really enjoyed the conversation, Jordan. Appreciate everybody listening. Thank you to questions. everyone for uh, uh, bearing with me and my dumb questions and <laughs> doing the high school math. <laughs> Dyslexic investment banker here. 